You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm uh, up here in the attic at home. I've got my good friend Gryffindor here next to me. He wanted to come and chill out with me. Uh, he's got a bone he's working on. So if you hear some munching sounds in the background, that's Griff uh, just hanging out. He's a, wow, well, how old is he now? He's probably like a 15 month old Sharpay Lab mix. Still kind of puppy. But uh, getting a little more, uh, a little more easygoing. He just likes to hang out when I'm doing work, and so he came up here in the attic to me, which is good because it's chilly up here. It's pretty darn cold. I'm hanging out at home today. It's December. The snow's on the ground. Uh, the kind of uh, holiday mood is in the air. I uh, started to do some baking last night, so things are moving in the right direction. Uh, had my last trip this past weekend. Uh, where we had our staff retreat in Florida. So I went from 80 degrees plus to now 16 degrees right now. I'm happy to be back. It's gorgeous. Earlier in November, I got a request to answer some questions for a journal that's being put out in the Detroit area. And I said, yes, I, I would be happy to do this. Send your questions over and I'll get to them. I had a hard time finding time in my schedule to do that. I got back and I said, could I do this as a podcast? Like, could I, in my mind, kill two birds with one stone, answer these questions in this way and send it over and then have you adapt that? The answer very amicably was, oh, yes, of course. And I said, well, I'll get to that right away. It's now like three weeks later and I still haven't got to it. And I feel really guilty about that. I'm going to try to give that a go today and we'll see where we end up. The first question, not an easy one. Let me just read it to you and then we'll, we'll get into it. Strong Towns has focused a lot on the widespread sprawl of suburbs and highways across America in the 20th century and how their proliferation has reshaped both our cities and the way we live. These histories have been shaped directly by both racist housing practices like neighborhood covenants and redlining, as well as by blight removal come highway construction that tore apart neighborhoods across the country. Is it possible for contemporary city planning to combat these inequities and correct for them in our present built environment. I've thought a lot about this since these were submitted to me. I think like the happy answer would be yes. Like, yes, city planning can solve these things. City planning can combat these things. Good, you know, contemporary city planning, the wise, enlightened, progressive city planner can become a force for good in the world. And it's interesting because we all know you know, just by looking at history, that, that that's always been the case with planning, right? I mean, since the City Beautiful movement, and, and even earlier, but particularly in the 20th century, city planning was this like progressive mindset. You know, we'll make the world a better place by having zoning. We'll make the world a better place by building highways. We'll make the world a better place by insert your planning fad. And one thing we've found with every single one of those inclinations is that they had really good intentions at their kind of, you know, glossy veneer. But at the core, they're still run by flawed human beings and flawed human beings who have, have all the flaws that we share, the capacity to overlook long-term expenses, you know, because of the, the wonderful things you'll do today, the inability to understand the complex connections between cause and effect, across multiple domains. And by the way, I'm not a critiquing planners there as being dumb. I think planners can be some of the most brilliant people around. The thing that's lacking is the humility to be able to understand your own limitations. Planners in the 20th century have no humility. It's always been, we can reshape the world. Here's all we have to do. We can make the world a better place. Here's all we have to do. And it's always been one-dimensional, two-dimensional thinking at the most two-dimensional thinking, it's never been an embrace of cities as complex human habitat, which is what it is. And I think because of that, these deep kind of systematic issues like racism, we struggle not only to address them, 
but we deal with our inability to address them by pretending we're doing something, particularly in the realm of, of planning. Let me elaborate on that a little bit. I'm venturing into territory that I've not spoken about a lot. And I actually am highly aware of my own ignorance. I have spent a great deal of time over the last few years trying to do more listening and learning and just start with the premise that particularly when it comes to racism in America and you know the experiences of people unlike me, people who are not uh, you know, go ahead and put your groups together, not white, not male, not middle class, not Catholic, not uh, Midwestern, not, uh, you know, bam, bam, bam. We all have our own categories that we fall into. I've come to respect the fact that life is very, very different. And the thing that I can do is not to assume that I understand, but to assume, you know, in the words of St. Francis, the opposite that I don't understand, that, that my effort should go into not being understood, but into understanding, particularly in this realm. I think this is a you know, belated thing in my life, but again, understand, engineer, planner, humility doesn't go along with those things. I'm, I'm late to the humility party in that sense. I've come to appreciate a little bit more some of the, um, let's call it unintentional in some cases, it was intentional, but I, I think broadly as a cultural thing, unintentional, and that's what makes it pernicious. The unintentional kind of structural, racist, or discriminatory things that have been embedded into our system. People like to point to redlining, and I think redlining is one of those things where it's like, you know, clearly, you can look at many aspects of it and say, wow, that's just horrifically racist. And I think, you know, we kind of caricature it in the abstract. We can point to, in retrospect, kind of like the worst parts of it that personify the things that, you know, we today would see as beyond the pale. Like, you know, we don't allow blacks in this neighborhood. And, you know, someone saying that today would be like horrified, right? Like, you can't say that. But <laughs> the results of current policies sometimes are not often very distinguishable from things that were more overtly racist. You say like, okay, today, are we less racist today? Are we less like, or are we just like less overt about it? Were those people back then all a bunch of, you know, walking around uh, spouting the N word and just completely bigoted and everything? Say, no, no. I, I think for the most part, they were probably a lot like modern white Americans today, maybe with a few different sensibilities, but I mean, I even finished just now a book about basically the South after the Civil War during Reconstruction and up until World War II and, and what happened and how there was this kind of flourishing right off the bat of former slaves being able to vote and being able to hold office and being very successful and kind of on their way to becoming landed, powerful, independently successful and then how that was all changed in a very short period of time after Reconstruction ended, after Northern troops went away, and when kind of the old systems of domination uh, were kind of reimagined around new ways of, of aligning them. There's story after story of laws that were put in place, vagrancy laws, for example, where you know you would say, well, if, you, if you're out and you don't have a job or you're not going from one place to another, you're a vagrant, you're a wanderer, which obviously many people who didn't own land would have been. So a lot of the freed slaves were vagrants in the definition of the day. They were trying to get themselves established, trying to find their way. If you're a vagrant, we can pick you up and we can charge you with the crime of vagrancy. And the crime of vagrancy might have a penalty of $2.00. You may be able to pay that or someone may be able to come in and pay it on your behalf. But the problem is you also had to pay all the court costs. So you had to pay the the fee for the people who arrested you and brought you in, which, by the way, any citizen could do because, you know, we want good citizens to stand up for the law and be against vagrants. Um, you had to pay for the, uh, the, the jailer, you know, for their time because, I mean, we can't put that on taxpayers. You had to pay for the judge and the bailiff and all that. So you're like $2 fine for vagrancy might wind up to be 75 bucks. And nobody had that. I mean, that was like three months worth of wages. You were not going to have that, especially not if you were a freed slave or a first generation 
beyond a freed slave. It just wasn't something that was part of your existence. And so what did we do? Largely what happened was people who did have money would come in and this was a racket. I mean, let's just call it what it was. It was a racket. They would come in and say, I will pay your $75 fine if you will sign this contract to come work for me for three years, essentially like as a slave. And that's what was happening. And then you would go out and you would work for this person, but it wasn't work. I mean, they could whip you, beat you, kill you, no ramifications. They would house you in horrible conditions, not feed you, not clothe you. In many cases, it was uh, described as worse than slavery because at least in slavery, there was you know some property that you were trying to protect. Um, in this case, it was just a one-year or two-year or three-year kind of thing where they lose you, you know, use you up and then throw you out. This was horrible. This was an absolutely like horrific condition. It took a long time for people to uh, recognize it, take a long time for people to fight back against it. In many places, this was kind of a known practice, but it was one of those like known, plausibly deniable kind of practices, right? One of those things where like people in the North or people far away from this might have heard rumblings of it the same way that we hear rumblings of child labor, making our shoes, that kind of thing. You know, but you're like, yeah, but, you know, someone's taking care of that. Like, I I don't have to worry about that. I can buy this pair of shoes and not worry too much. And in other instances, you would actually identify things and then there would be a prosecution. So we uphold the law. Like, we don't allow this. This is not okay. But then the prosecutions would start out strong and then wind up being, at the end, like a, a wink and a nod. Kind of like some of our bankers today, you know, I'm watching the stock market crash today and thinking about uh, who will not be found liable the next time something terribly wrong at that level happens. You look back and you're like, okay, this was horribly systematically wrong, but was it really wrong in a way that we've somehow changed? I don't think it is. I, I, I don't think that it is. Let me just elaborate on that a little bit because I mentioned the shoes, someone making your shoes. I mentioned we have put millions and millions of people, largely minority people, into prison today. And we've done this for minor drug offenses, uh, for you know the modern day version of vagrancy in many ways. I just got done listening to the latest season of Serial, which was all about courthouses in Cleveland. And if you can listen to that and really believe that we are setting people up for success and not failure and in a systematic way, you're really not paying attention. You're really not paying attention. So I think these problems run deep. I think they're systematic. And I think there's a certain amount of hubris involved when planners say, we can fix this. My experience and my reading of history says every time that we think we can fix this, we wind up doing more harm than good. How do I think if we wanted to do it differently, could we actually start to combat inequities? And as the question says, correct for them in the present built environment. I'm going to preface my answer to that, which is not the question asked, but I'm going to rephrase it and ask it in that way. What could we do? (laughs) Tangent. I used to believe because I was a planner uh, back in the early 2000s that like the proper zoning code could solve everything. You know, we could cure cancer if we had like the right zoning code. We could get Palestinian Israeli peace uh, if we had the right mix of zoning codes because zoning is kind of this thing that will solve all problems. And I, I realize how like silly that is. What would actually, I think, make things better? Let me make it like that, like not correct for them, not solve them, not fix, but what could actually put us on a course to making things better? I think if that was the bar, what I would like to see is us kind of hyper-localize our capital investment strategies. I just said a bunch of like five-syllable words. Let me break that down. I think that when we are spending money at a government level on making things better, let's just use that broad umbrella, that that money should be spent at the block level as much as possible. Here's kind of the the rub with that. I'll elaborate on why in a second, but let me give you the rub right off the bat because I know there's people screaming at the the speaker right now going, you know, the Chuck, here's the problem. The more local you get, the more human we become. Racism 
if we want to just focus on racism for a minute, uh, the more local we become, the more like overtly bigoted our conversations tend to be. The more macro we become or the more distant we become, the more systematic our racism tends to be. To me, there's a double-edged sword of prejudice there in a sense. We're talking about racism now. I think this runs across many, many domains, right? This is why at the federal level, I tend to be rather libertarian. At the local level, I tend to be rather communal. I think there's a different set of morality that applies in both places. If we're going to talk specifically about racism and the impacts of racism on our built environment, the closer we get to the local level, the more you get the actual, like, here locally in a city not too far from me, we had people who ran for city council and nearly won whose platform and, you know, got subsizable amounts of vote, like 30 plus percent of the vote, whose platform was actually, we need to keep all Muslims out of our city. This is the United States, you know, freedom of association, freedom to travel. You can't put up walls and keep you. We need to keep Muslims not out of the United States, out of our city. Like they should not be here. Not only is that just stupid, like constitutionally, I mean, it's just not who we are. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. And like many, many levels, 30% plus of the vote. So the closer you get to the local level, the more that kind of thing comes out. The further you get away from that, the more it becomes systematic. Like we are going to have Fannie and Freddie fund this kind of house, but not this kind. And the kind of fund happens to be the kind that like white middle class people live in. And the other kind is the kind that poor people live in. That has gone on. And we have all kinds of like justifications for those kind of things. We are going to invest in uh, rails to trails. And boy, what a great, wonderful program. Isn't it great? It provides really good recreational opportunities for affluent people while poor people have to walk across the strode to get to the junky bus stop on the other side. Pick your poison. Do you want it to be uh, the local Bubba kind of racism? Do you want it to be the national structural racism? That's my take. Granted, I am less impacted on this than a lot of people are. That being said, I don't see it as like one is good and one is bad. It's just a different, it's a different poison. At the local, local level, at the block level, what I see an opportunity to do if we can bring our public investment down to that level is to start to empower people, is to start to empower groups of people. I think, you know, when we look at uh, the neighborhoods in Shreveport that, that we've been able to spend time in, the neighborhoods in Memphis that I've been able to be in, the old Goucher neighborhood of Baltimore where I was in this past fall, these are all places that have suffered from the big scale systematic disinvestment. The you know, crazy rules that don't allow you to start a corner bar or have to keep the uh, strode through the middle of your neighborhood at certain capacities. I want to empower, at least for the next generation, uh, the very fine-grained localist kind of uh, development, the incremental, the tiny little things that are going to thicken these places up, make them stronger, make them healthier. And if if you do this right, if you do this I started to sound like a planner there. If you follow my, <laughs> if we allow the people in those neighborhoods to direct where the needs are, I know there's planners listening right now. They're like, we go out and listen to them and we do surveys. No, I'm not talking about public engagement the way we do it now. I'm talking about going out, being uncomfortable by saying like, where are people in this neighborhood struggling and how do we actually deploy this money that we were going to spend doing this big, crazy project somewhere else? Because that's our dream. How do we deploy that in smaller little chunks, little, you know, different things to affect what's going on in these neighborhoods? I think we can start to shift the balance of power. We can start to empower people who have been left out. We can start to empower people who have been left behind. We can give them wealth and the capacity to do for themselves. And, and really, when we're talking about overcoming uh, systematic biases, whether it is the bias of blue blood versus commoner, which you know for centuries was the bias that we had to overcome, or whether it is now, like I think this racial bias that has become over the last you know few hundred years, the bias that we now have identified and are dealing with to, again, 
hopefully on a grand level overcome. The way we see all of those things changing, all of those things changing, is when there is a change in economic opportunity. I'm going to put this in like kind of a coarse term. I think about like my own kids and you know, I've got these two daughters and I, I love them like passionately. I would do anything for them. If you said to me, Chuck, we want to have this process for college admission that would favor the kids from families unlike yours. I would say, okay, like in a systematic way, like I get that, I understand that. And uh, I'm willing to like entertain that. I'm willing to, willing to go down that route. You know, like from a policy standpoint, we could have that, we could at least have that conversation. But if you said to me, you know, your kid has applied to X college, you know, the admissions person there could call them and talk to them and get your kid like bumped up on the list, or you could use whatever influence you have, which for me is not much, but let, let's say that I was, you know, someone who was wealthy and could make donations to the school that you would not use that to help your kid, this kid that you love move ahead in life and get to the next level. Of course I would do that. Of course I would do that. We all make these compromises with our own macro morality uh, because of our own selfish self-interest, the things we love most. And, and often those are not ourselves, right? Like I'm not suggesting, that's why I use my kids as an example. I'm not doing this for my own grandeur, my own, like, you know, to make my own life easier. I'm doing this because like, I love, I passionately love these children. That's the way humans are, right? And I, I think when we ignore that, we ignore something fundamental. How do we empower communities that are disempowered today so that they have that capacity as well, so that they can lift uh, themselves up, the ones they love up, the people around them up? How do we do that? I think we have a generation, we have you know the next 20 or 30 years where instead of doing big, grand projects that emanate from Washington, D.C. and the state capitals, that flow through local bureaucracies, that, that you know, funnel large sums of money into pet projects and, and that kind of thing, that we invert our public funding approach so that everything is derived at the local level. As much as possible, as much as we can, our investments are at the block level, at the neighborhood level, and they're directed by the needs and kind of the urgent needs of people in those neighborhoods. Our goal should be to build wealth across a broad platform over a long period of time. And, and I'm convinced that if we do that, which is related to city planning and related to the built environment, but not in like the current mindset of, well, here's how you build a complete street, or here's how you have a nice streetscape project, or here's how you subsidize a, a grocery store in a food desert. Those are all like response. I'm talking about, we need to build ecosystems that strengthen people, strengthen blocks, strengthen neighborhoods, strengthen families. That's the way we will start to push back on and kind of rebalance the power that we see out of balance today. And let me just make one final observation. I brought up the blue bloods and the commoners. If you go study the bubonic plague, the time in medieval Europe when plague raced through and killed millions of people, just completely decimated the population. You would think that in the historical arc of history, that this would be a horrible thing. This would be one of those things that, you know, at that point, population was, was decimated, that uh, people struggled. Like you would look at this as like, you know, the, the decades or centuries following were going to be really bad. It was the exact opposite was the exact opposite. And largely what happened is the people who remained understand that bubonic plague affected rich and poor alike. So everybody got it. Rich and poor alike died. If you were rich, you weren't immune. So it, it affected everybody. But then secondly, the poor people that were left behind found themselves in huge demand. Now I have this field. I'm a king. I have this field I need to have tended to. And instead of having 50 people to choose from, I've got 20. What happens? those 20 become really powerful. The balance of power starts to shift. And now they can charge you know, more for their labor. They can actually go work somewhere else. Uh, you're going to have to struggle to keep them uh, subjected. You're going to have to hire more, you know, more people to help you keep people down and in their place. 
it's ultimately not going to work because they're going to be outnumbered and they're going to have to come from those classes. And the classes that you're kind of used to having the social stratification are going to get all messed up. You're going to wind up having to make deals with merchants and merchant class will arise. And the merchant class is more in common with the poor people. This is how like change happens. We are at a point right now where if we want to empower people who have been disenfranchised, I'm not suggesting we walk away from the, like, the Department of Justice and just allow overt racism to dominate. I struggle with that because I do think that the more we stay federal with this, the more we stay top down, the more we stay big, the more you're just accepting a certain level of systematic racism just to avoid the, the bubba kind of local racism. I would rather deal with the latter because I think you can deal with that with relationships, with power changes, with, you know, people reaching a new understanding. And that's how you actually change the systematic stuff as well. We're not doing very well on time here. I'm on the second question and I'm already probably halfway through the thing that I want to do. You see why I couldn't write these out as answers. I think they're very complicated. Number two, here's the second question. What do you make of the contemporary trend of cities using cultural capital as a means to grow their economies? Do you see a connection between displacement and cities that seem to be developing explicitly for the growth of a, quote, creative class? What do I make of this trend? I actually don't see it as pernicious as a lot of people do. And I actually think that one of the things that, again, this gets into the whole like bureaucracy class that our cities are run by today, which, which I think we need to diminish their capacity. But when you say something like the creative class, they want to institutionalize that. If you actually read Richard Florida, if you actually read what he says, yes, there's a bit of coffee shops and millennials doing web design, but there's also a recognition that like the beautiful African-American woman in Shreveport building this garden, this neighborhood garden, and having that be a focal point of the community, she is part of the creative class. Now, she's not part of the affluent class. She's not part of the moneyed class, but she's certainly part of the creative class. When cities embrace uh, what is being called in this question cultural capital, when they are trying to be open, be inviting, really embrace people who in other contexts might be kind of marginalized, I I think when they do that, they're becoming more complete places. They're going to become more successful places. You go back to the cities of the early 1900s, before the phonogram, before the radio, before movies. And what you see is that like every small town had people who made a living doing creative class things. My little town here had people who just did music all the time. That's what they did. They were entertainers. They had people who just did art. You had carpenters who were not pound in stud walls, but were people who did like very attention to detail kind of value add. Um, you had craftsmen who were essentially artists, were creative class kind of people. It, it's kind of bizarre to me today that we take this notion of, I think, just the natural creativity of of large numbers of people. And we somehow call that some special class as if that's not just like the normal condition. When I read Richard Florida and when I think about the creative class, what I'm seeing is a call to basically make our cities a little less efficient, a little less assembly line-ish, and embrace a little more the kind of messiness and complexity that actually makes good human habitat. So I am not keen on the trend of cities using cultural capital as a means to grow their economies in the sense that you have cities saying, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to build a big uh, performing arts center or we're going to build a, you know, insert your big massive project. I am cool with cities allowing people to go in and make their neighborhoods funky, uh, make their neighborhoods interesting, incrementally invest in them and build them up. I'm not so cool with coming later after the fact and saying, this is a hot neighborhood, let's build six-story condos. I'm for incremental growth. And I think to have that incremental development pattern, to have that kind of investment, you need creative people. And not only do you need creative people, but you need to give creative people like the room to be creative. The way we seem to be approaching it today, and I think what this question is pushing back on, is this idea that you can have top-down creativity. To me, that's an oxymoron. I think that the displacement problem 
when people get uptight over gentrification and displacement, they wind up with the wrong boogeyman. They start to think that the problem is the developer coming in to build. The problem is people wanting to invest capital in the neighborhood. The problem is the people who want to move there and want to be there. When the reality is, is it's largely a function of the scale. It's largely a function of the increment of change that is allowed by this macro system. Uh, And it's largely a function of, uh, I think, the desire of local bureaucracies, local governments, and what have you to experience growth and success in a way that is comfortable for them. I don't think this is a creative class issue. I think it's a development pattern issue. And the way we get around it is by going, again, down to the block level and working incrementally. All right, next question. You've stated how following World War II, the American pattern of development has prioritized growth regardless of its productivity. Could you speak about what you refer to as the growth Ponzi scheme and how it relates to the intersection of land use and local finance? Well, now we're in my wheelhouse. (laughs) Those last two questions have been outside of my wheelhouse. Hang on. I think I lost Gryffindor. Hey, Griff, where are you? (whistles) Buddy. See, the problem is when Griff is up in the attic here, he tends to you know, when he gets bored, go scrounge around and see if he can get into uh, the daughter's things. Sometimes those are like old stuffed animals, which, you know, while not uh, an urgent thing, she doesn't want to see them like ripped apart. Um, Sometimes it's her toys, which she also doesn't like. I'm going to pause here a second, go see if I can find him because he's kind of freaking me out. Okay. Disaster averted. Griff, no. Come on, bud. You got to stay here, pal. (laughs) My kids, my two daughters, want to get a little dog. We always had Samoyeds, which are like the white, fluffy snow dogs. Like 45 to 60 pounds, like, you know, nice, healthy, kind of what I thought was a big dog. They want to get small dogs. I want to get like a mid-sized dog. So I was thinking like the 45-pound Samoyed would be like the upper limit. We get something in that like, you know, 25 to 35-pound range. We got Gryffindor. I don't know what I was thinking. He was a puppy when we got him and he was like 20 pounds when we got him. And I was thinking he would be like 35, 40 pounds. He's uh, roughly like 95 pounds. <laughs> He's just this giant of a dog. Uh, what do you do? All right. So can I speak about the growth Ponzi scheme and how we prioritize growth regardless of its productivity? Let me try to do this concisely. When we got out of World War II, understand who we were and where we were. We had just gone through the Great Depression, a period of such economic turmoil. It just was devastating. You can talk to people from that era and they will describe to you the pain and agony of going through it. It was tumultuous. And I think the thing that was the worst aspect of it is that no one could really explain it. Sure, there were lots of explanations. There were lots of people who thought they could explain it, but no one who really could explain it in a satisfying way, in a way that was actionable. In other words, FDR is known for the New Deal. The New Deal was basically, let's try everything we can because we have no clue how to fix this. And in fact, you can see that, you know, even by the end of the 30s, by the beginning of World War II, we were still in depression. I mean, we were not out of this by any means. The, the economy was maybe not at, had plumbing the depths that it had, um, but we were still in like general malaise. Economically, this was a, a lost decade of epic proportions and nothing we did fixed it until we got to the Second World War, where we sent all these uh, working age people overseas to fight and die. And we filled the factories with people to build bombs and and guns and bullets and uniforms and what have you. All of a sudden, that ended the depression in a sense. Now, it created other things, austerity, (laughs) you know, sacrifice. It wasn't like, you know, happy times are here again. It was a war. It was horrible. But from an economic standpoint, no more depression. The economists that surrounded FDR were convinced, and for good reason, that as soon as the war was over, we were just going to go right back into depression. We were just going to slide right back into that worst of the worst agony. When all these troops came home, millions of people deployed, when we stopped making all this stuff for war production, it was just going to be over, and we were going to go right back to where we had been. How would you keep from doing that? Well, the way you keep from doing that is you essentially keep your economy on 
what we can think of as a, like a war footing. But you're not fighting a war. And nobody wants to fight like an eternal war, even though today it kind of seems sometimes like we do. Nobody wants to fight an eternal war. So what do you what do you do? You shift that production capacity from bullets to Oldsmobiles, from tanks and, and ships to houses and subdivisions. That's what you do. We took as the world's biggest, most successful economy, the one country in the world that had not, the one major like power in the world that had not been decimated by the war, had not had war fought on its soil, had not had you know its own people suffer wartime hardship the way the Soviet Union, which lost tens of millions of people, had gone through. What you do is you take all that productive capacity and you put it to work building this different version of America. An America that, and let's put a positive spin on it, would be more prosperous, more healthy. We can deal with these all these problems of the congested, overcrowded cities by using this great technology, the automobile, to spread people out. It will create growth and jobs and opportunity for everyone. Yes, it might only be for certain middle class, but the middle class is growing and it's going to continue to expand and it will someday include everyone. These were people with aspirations for greatness and aspirations for greatness for everyone. This was a very... I know the whole redlining conversation and we talk about that. I think like at its very kind of maybe accepting or or passively systematically wrong, uh, I think there was this notion that eventually we'll get to everybody here, right? right? Like maybe now we won't include African-Americans in our neighborhood, but they will have nice neighborhoods too someday. I think in an idealistic framing of what this was, it was a chance to solve all these problems for everyone and make America this great, prosperous land. Here's the thing. It started to work, right? You can read people that were alive at the time who write today. There is a huge nostalgia in this country for the 1950s and early 1960s. When I listened to the last presidential election and you heard Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton talking about what their vision was, their vision was Let's go back to the way things were like in the 60s and do that today. So whether your vision was blue-collar jobs and, and Aussie and Harriet families, or whether your vision was an expansive federal government that can do things like the Great Society and expand Medicare and expand Social Security and build a bigger safety net, all those things were at like the same period of time. This was a, an explosion of prosperity brought about by essentially putting this capacity we had to do uh, things to work in building this new version of America. And for a while, it worked. It felt good. It looked good. It started to create a broader set of prosperous conditions for people. I think there's good reasons why people bought into it. When you get to the 70s and the early 80s, and in my framework, like the first generation of this stuff starts to go bad right? It starts to break down. It starts to need maintenance. It starts to be places that, because these places aren't built to last, becomes places where, you know, all of a sudden we've, we've got to fix stuff. We've got these huge costs to fix these roads. We've got these massive costs to fix this pipe. There's this whole kind of introspection moment we go through where we try to figure out, like, what do we do? How, how do we get around this? How do we deal with the fact that in order to keep this all going, our economy really needs to grow um, because this stuff it doesn't work. It doesn't pay for itself. It, it's it's bankrupting us. Nixon had a Costa Sprawl report that was put out that basically said this in the seven in the early seventies. You know, the more we do this, the more bankrupt we're becoming. What did we do? We did a couple of systematic things. One, we went off the gold standard, which I realized that. You know, the gold standard is massively discredited today amongst elitist economic circles. There's a lot of people listening to this today who subscribe to Warren Buffett's version that, you know, the gold standards just worship of a barbarous relic. I get that. I understand that. I've read the theories. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm just going to say it's very easy to be prolificate and undisciplined if you have no anchor, right? If you have nothing that is going to hold you in check it's very convenient to become way out of balance. It's very easy to become way out of balance. And I, I think there's a good case to be made that the gold standard, however barbarous it was, was a check on our 
appetites. If we had not gone off the gold standard, we would have been forced to deal with the insolvency of our development pattern. We didn't. We started to print money. Uh, we started to borrow large sums of money. And you see through the 70s and then accelerating during Reagan's term in the 80s, our response to the economy seizing up and slowing down and, and essentially rejecting this economic model that we had put into place after World War II to keep us from going back into depression, you see us doubling down on that with huge amounts of debt. Jane Jacobs wrote about this in uh, The Economy of Cities. And if you want to read a viewpoint from someone from a planning um, kind of urbanist mindset, go read that book. Um, she gets into this in detail, and I think her critique is right on. She was describing it back then. I think what we've seen is that uh, we successively blew a number of financial bubbles, uh, financial bubble in the 80s, financial bubble in the dot-coms, uh, financial bubble in the housing crisis, and now we have kind of this, what's been called the everything bubble now, the bubble in bonds, which is basically like a bubble in all underlying debt in our economy, that's been our response to this imbalance, to the fact that we need to grow and we have to grow because if we don't grow, we can't take care of all the things we promised we would do. I'm going to give you an analogy that Tomas Sedlicek, probably my favorite economist, I heard him use once. He said, is our economy more like uh, someone on a bike? Or is it more like someone walking? If you're someone on a bike, you have to keep moving forward. Otherwise, you fall over. If you try to just stay in one spot as a bike, um, you tip over. But if you're moving ahead, and actually if you're moving ahead pretty quickly, you become steadier. Is our economy more like that? Or is our economy more like someone walking? Where I can stand here all day. I don't tip over. I'm very stable. I can also move forward. And when I move forward, I'm stable as well, but then I can stop and I can go forward and stop. Stable. Is our economy more like a bike or more like someone walking? Our economy is clearly more like a bike. We need to get back to having an economy that's more like someone walking. And I think those analogies are really good too, because you think about the difference between someone walking and someone riding a bike is obviously speed. If I'm walking, I'm very stable. I get where I can go, but I won't get there as quickly. If I'm on a bike, I get to where I want to go, but I can't stop. I can't slow down. I can't change speed. I have to keep going, keep going, keep going. Otherwise, I, I fall over. I tip over. What we have done is we've created an economy. We've created a development pattern that has driven our economy in where we need to have new growth in order to make up for all of the obligations that we have from the past. And so not only do we need new growth just for new growth's sake, we need it to cover everything in the past. Growth rates actually have to accelerate upwards because if we merely just slow down our rate of growth, we can still continue to grow. We can still continue to expand. But if we just slow down the rate, if we can't keep up with these mounting, mounting liabilities, it all cascades down. That's where we're at today. It's an extremely fragile system. Uh, and it's one that is ultimately will work itself out in ways that are not really predictable and at times that are not really predictable. Um, but when we're talking about land use and local finance. What we're talking about is cities having to continue to invest in things that create the most rapid amount of growth possible because their system will go bad in a hurry if they are unable to. All right, last question. Let's see if we can get this one done in 10 minutes. Much of Strong Towns is devoted to issues of transportation and its effect on cities. What are your thoughts on the new wave of electric scooters in cities, such as here in Detroit, that are being offered by private tech companies as solutions to the issue of lacking public transportation and CO2 emissions? Um, well, are the private tech companies saying that this is a solution to public transportation, CO2 emissions? I, I don't, I don't know. Here's the interesting thing. If you told me, Chuck, you have to come up with a solution for our lack of public transportation and you have to come up with a solution for CO2 emissions, what is it? First of all, I don't think of things in that way. But if you made me do that, if you said, what's the solution? I would say, what? Walking. <laughs> that, that's like the, <laughs> it's not even a solution. That's what people are doing today, right? You go to any like poor neighborhood in the country you go to any like disadvantaged part of town, you even go to affluent parts and look around and you will see poor people walking. 
That's what people do. Here in my hometown, we have people who, in 20 below weather, walk miles across town to get to the fast food place where they'll work a three-hour shift. That's what they do. That's what they do. They're, if, if you're not seeing them, you're not looking very hard. They are everywhere. They're all over the place. If we're talking about lack of public transportation, I think scooters are amazing. I think scooters are a huge step up from what we have now in those places. And I love the idea of, of having them out there. Now, my experience has largely been scooters are being targeted not in neighborhoods like that. They're being targeted in neighborhoods you know, where you have affluent people. They're, they're lifestyle things. They're fun lifestyle things, kind of in the way that often bike share can be like a fun lifestyle thing. Um, I've seen some studies that say, you know, the, the demographics of people who use bike share tend to be more affluent now, I know that that's not an absolute. There are plenty of poor people who use it, but it tends to be the opposite, right? It tends to be a, a lifestyle thing. I see that where the scooters are at now. If we're really trying to overcome a lack of public transportation, to me, the answer there is make it easier to walk and make things closer. That's how you actually solve that problem. You're not going to solve that problem by increasing your transit budget by 5% or 10% or 50% or 100%. There are feedback loops that would prevent that from being very helpful. I think you can make improvements. I think you can make it better. I'm not suggesting that more money wouldn't help. But if you're asking, like, what is the solution? Like, how do we make this no longer a problem? You get people out walking and you get things closer to where you live. That, that's how humans have always solved that problem. I think the scooter actually gets us closer to that. So in that sense, like, I'm very pro-scooter. I think the scooters are great. As far as CO2 emissions... I'm sure that's part of the branding and the marketing. You know, when you walk, you've got fewer CO2 emissions as well. Um, although, you know, when things are closer, you might have more auto trips to bring in supplies. There'll be smaller auto trips, probably less efficient. Again, I think there's a, there's a feedback loop there that maybe gets you where you want to go to some degree, but not completely. I'm one who spends very little time talking about uh, the CO2 emission issue largely because I I find our conversation around it to be incoherent, not because I I don't think it's a problem and not because I don't think there are ways to deal with it, but because I I just think like the conversation around it is unhelpful. We're going to cut down on auto trips and have electric scooters. And that's somehow going to help reduce climate change or, or, you know, change our level of CO2 emissions. I, I find that silly. I find that silly. I mean, you get cars off the road and then more people will drive. What we fail to appreciate, and I think what we fail to respect, is that human habitats are complex adaptive systems. You know, we always talk about, oh, you know, humans are so innovative. Um, when gas gets to be too expensive, we'll come up with something else. When energy gets to be too expensive, we'll innovate our way out of this. When uh, CO2 emissions threaten our environment, we'll figure out a technology solution. I think humans are innovative. And I think humans will come up with adaptations. If you look back in history, one of the adaptations has been societal collapse. Everything falls apart and stops working, and we pick up the pieces and start rebuilding again. Yeah, humans are innovative. That's what happens. I'm not suggesting that that is like inevitable this time, like that's the only possible outcome. But I think this idea that somehow scooters solve or put a dent in CO2 emissions and there's some like linear relationship, like the more scooters we have, the, the better for the environment. That's the kind of like crazy wishful thinking that has gotten us to this place today. If we want to solve these two problems simultaneously, a lack of public transportation and CO2 emissions, I think the way we start to attack that problem is by making our neighborhoods more walkable and bringing more of the destinations that people want into the neighborhoods where they live. That, that's it. Like, that, that's as simple as you get. And in that sense, scooters are good, and I will embrace them as being something that will help with that transition. Um, because it is a transition. It won't happen overnight. It's going to happen over a period of years or, or even decades in some places. So scooters are, are a good part of that. So are bikes. So is uh, your two feet. These are all great things. So is, by the way, rideshare. Um, so is, by the way, uh, some more buses and microtransit. I, I think this is part of the thing about strong towns that a lot of people fail to grasp and, and maybe aren't comfortable with is that while we're not embracing like a solution, we're also not rejecting any solutions, 
I think that there are places for light rail. I think that there are places for subways. I think there are places for bus systems. I think there's places for performing arts centers and stadiums. I, I definitely am not against any of these things. I just think that if you're not there, you're not there. And the way you, you, you know that you've arrived is you build incrementally up to it. What we are so tempted to do is to build to like the finished condition, the optimum thing that we see in our minds as being like the ultimate thing that needs to happen here. And in that, we are almost always wrong. We are almost always wrong. And not only are we wrong, but we're wrong in a way that is tone deaf to the actual needs of people on the ground. If we spent more time focusing on the needs of people on the ground, how people actually lived in their neighborhoods, where they actually struggled, and how we could address that struggle one day at a time, bit by bit, year after year, neighborhood after neighborhood, we would not only be humbling ourselves to identify investments that would have huge payoffs, um, but they would be investments that would, would make people's lives better, empower people, help them be better off, help them be more successful. To me, that's what a strong town's approach is. And when we talk about electric scooters, I'm not in love with electric scooters because they're going to help CO2 emissions. I don't think they will. I don't think they change anything in that regard, except in the sense that I think they can get us to a place where we would have other options. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm planning to do one more little podcast here before the end of the year. Uh, we're getting to that December timeframe where things start to, to wind down a little bit. I hope you're enjoying your December. And as always, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everyone. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.